Juniors, can't you let her finish school first? You yeah. like them 11, call 12, and I hope the 13 hunts you. And my smoke, you do not want it. All my lines are dope like Hunter. Rocky, I'm Apollo Creed, only legacy of the rap scene. It's the Marine artillery, shot more arms than a vaccine. Ain't doing nothing for the human races, you just ruin things, and you the biggest races, you the biggest lie, but you ain't no fire like you will for all the Talladega. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go, Brandon A. Let's go, let's go, let's go, Brandon A. Let's go, let's go, let's go, Brandon A. Let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go uh, America don't care about no joke. I thought that you should know. Got us rolling back the curtains on the stage. You just set. Treat you more like Alec Baldwin. has been a proper number threat. Oh, most popular president in U.S. history. How they calculated that still remains a mystery. Economy isn't great. Containers stuck at bay. And you have no current plan for the current man on this way. Talking build back better, more like build back broke. Gas prices so high to make a dope fiend choke. As a veteran, I try to respect the commander in chief. But if I'm honest, let's go. Brandon brings amazing relief. Uh. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go, Brandon. A. 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 Let's go. Let's go. Let's go, Brandon. All right. Welcome, everyone, to the Tory Sess Show. It's the 27th of October, 2021. Now, it's Wednesday. And I guess the one thing that I can say, and I don't want to say too much, is uh, things always happen for a reason. And the fact that I was, I have to be more careful because this is not a game. Um, Those that are very close to me know exactly what's been going on. I didn't want you guys to, uh, you know, feel like, um, you know, um, you know, lose faith because I let my guard down. Uh, so I'm good. Um, I am better. Um, it was unexpected. Uh, at first I thought it was something completely, you know, benign. Then I thought it was something else. It turned out (laughs) it was pretty crazy. So I'll explain. So, uh, you all know that my daughter's sweet 16 was on Friday. I had the party on the 23rd because she hates her birthday. And um, on the 22nd on Friday, I started to get like creepy attacks, like in my DM, threatening stuff, um, just really weird things. And then other people were having meltdowns. Maybe, you know, there's like prostitutes deployed, whatever, whispering in their ear, Um, it was just all together. And then the media came together and then everyone was attacking. And you guys know that my deadline for, um, well, we were waiting for dominion to actually file a response on Monday. And, you know, I was like, damn, they even have, they haven't even responded to appearance. And so my attorney was busy with family things. Um, and then in the afternoon when he got in there, he saw they asked for an extension, but, The thing is, we were, if they weren't going to make an appearance, 
we were going to withdraw. And I can't tell you why, um, because I'm doing something else. Uh, we were going to file, we wanted to file an amended complaint, um, but no one had made an appearance. So we were like, so Dominion's not showing up and they show up like the day of saying, Hey, we just got assigned. So what has been, has Dominion be, you know, sitting on their ass since August sounds really weird. Sounds like some real fuckery there, especially when the judge is changing dates on her own, you know, without being prompted. So we were going to, um, amend the complaint. Um, and we never got to it. Uh, so there was no point in doing it. Um, we were just waiting to see if they were going to turn up. And when they filed for an extension, we we're like, yeah, that's not happening. Um, because we wanted to, 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 to say, Hey, we want to do this. Uh, so anyway, I'm not going to say much on that. You never tell the enemy what you're doing. So regardless, banana peels. So we keep it at that for now. Um, anyway, so I had all that going on and all these weird people that think that their personas or people that are important, uh, talking so much shit to me. And I was like wondering, damn, all of that. And then the actual bodily harm that came to me was the alarming portion of it. See, I could deal with trolling and, and bullshit, but when there's bodily harm, uh, you know, that's a concern for me. And that was my fault for not, uh, for being uh, vulnerable and not, um, not paying attention to my situational awareness. So, um, I'm, I'm better now. I mean, it'll be a bit, uh, I am better now. Uh, so I can actually speak today. Um, it was, it was pretty bad, pretty, pretty bad, but that's because, you know, I was more into the moment having, you know, fun with my little girl and I mean, all aspects of it, anything that could go wrong went wrong. But when the attack came to me, now that's scary. Um, uh, so, um, regardless today, I'm going to introduce you to some really important targets. Uh, of our um, fight against tyranny. Uh, we're going to talk about these things. I mean, we already know we need to impeach Obama, right? We, we don't need to talk about that uh, much. But we do need to share Tucker Carlson's, um, you know, viewpoint on Obama because I am loving the fact that lately he's been kind of super on point with all of this. Um I did tell you guys for years and you know, it's not to pat myself on the back. It's to point to you guys that obviously if I know it, others know it. So the question you should be asking yourself is one, those that haven't been saying shit are covering up so it can happen or two, they're just stupid and a waste of your time. And why are you listening to them anyway? Right? Bottom line. Okay. It's not about titles and tiaras here. This is about our nation. Having said that, the movement that has been created by you, the people, uh, in our groups has grown exponentially. You are being seen with your stickers across the nation. You are being heard across the nation. Uh, we are a big threat. I mean, we got the national, you know, uh, school board association fucking sided off. Even though I was dying, I still got that shit done, didn't I? And then other states joined in too. So um, that was um, that was pretty incredible. The state of Virginia, keep your eye on that. Your Virginia 
counterparts are doing some really badass moves uh, that is just incredible to see happening. Incredible. Incredible. I am so impressed by their prowess, their attention to detail, and their um, motivation. And this is it. Because, you know, you get a lot of these people in the groups and it's like, that's where you cut them out. When someone tells you there's no hope and, oh, you can't fix this. Don't you get it? We're going to lose. We're all going to die. Nah, 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 right? You need to excise them, right? Excise them like an orchiectomy, you know, where you remove testicles. They're just that unnecessary third testicle nobody needs hanging around, right? This is where you remove them, right? And we talked about the beginning of the year in January, how, you know, we need to start getting active more. Uh, we've been talking about it for a very long time anyway on the show for those that have been around for a while. But, um, you know, you got a lot of side tracking. You had these fake ass audit groups that were, that have Josh Merritt, the one that sabotaged with Scamtilly that, uh, you know, the symposium, the Mike Lindell, they came and literally copied our roll call and then poached the ones that love titles and tiaras in your state groups to go over there. And they're not doing shit except for thumping information. I know a lot of people are like, we need to canvas. We need to do, no, we don't. We have other things we can fix. We have shit to fix. Those are distractions and rabbit holes you don't need to be putting yourself in. Now, the quo warrantos we talked about in January were very important. Many people took it. Arizona ran with it. I did my thing and learned a lot from it. There's someone that has one in D.C., still under seal. They're playing footsie with that one person. But, you know, there's a lot of those coming out, too. So it's going to be super, super, super interesting. So we got that, right, going. Then we have our writs. Our writs are on fire right now. A lot of people are like, oh, it's no point in doing it. Yeah, it is a fucking point. You're making history. It's in the books. It's done. It's sealed that you fought for your nation and you used the courts, right? This is it. So that's that. Um, you are making history. We need wins. We need losses. I'm telling you, I'm winning my fucking writ. And that will set precedent. That is going to set precedent. Period. We've got um, uh, Tennessee uh, in court at their Supreme Court. So if anybody's in Tennessee, you should pop into the Supreme Court. Uh, you know what? I didn't even ask if um, it's going to be litigated online or in court. But you guys need to be right behind that. If that shit's being streamed, I'm going to be streaming it for you on Friday. We're making history. Tennessee is being heard on Friday. And we have Jerry that actually filed it. She's able to stand on her own. We don't need lawyers to talk about freedom and constitutional. Yeah, jargon, jargon, jargon. No, 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 no. We can easily do this ourselves. Remember, the courts are for the people. So she's in the Supreme Court. Uh, those of you that are in Tennessee would be great. If it's in the court, find out from your Tennessee group. Uh, we should all support it. If there is a online listening thing, call thing, whatever, I'm streaming that shit for everyone. Uh, I'm just letting you know. Um, so we're making waves. And this is storm week, and it's going to be a big storm. You guys are the ones that are bringing it, and they haven't realized that yet. But they will. I mean, they have. They know. And this is why... This, this, you know, cultivated attack, which shocked me because it was so multifaceted. It, it blew my mind. It blew my mind just how elaborate and detailed it was. I mean, but like I said, the direct assault on me was the problem. And, um, I'm, I'm lucky to have a good, uh, personal physician. Um, that's really important. So let's start with some fun.
some fun with Tucker. Tucker, I freaking love him when he does this and he speaks truth. And I want you guys to listen to this segment. It is incredible. Boy dressed as a girl is accused of raping an actual girl in the bathroom of a school in Loudoun County, Virginia. That assault's occurring in our restaurant. Boy dressed as a girl is accused of raping an actual girl in the bathroom of a school in Loudoun County, Virginia. That boy apparently has just been found guilty by a judge. The father of the girl who says she was raped is called Scott Smith, and he said he plans to file a lawsuit against the school system over this, and that can't come too soon. At a recent school board meeting, the superintendent of Loudoun County Schools, a guy called Scott Ziegler, said, quote, we don't have any records of assaults occurring in our restrooms because, of course, they couldn't be bothered to keep track. What does that have to do with the equity agenda? Nothing. What do we care about our students? Nothing. So students walked out of school today in Loudoun County into protest. Lou Rosiak is with The Daily Wire. He broke this story and deserves the credit for it. He joins us tonight with an update. Luke, thanks so much for coming on. Everything about this story is stomach turning. Tell us where we are tonight, please. Well, yesterday the kid was convicted in court of both assaults. The first one that happened in a bathroom uh, where he was convicted of rape. Uh, and then the second one where the school didn't tell anyone it had happened, transferred him to a different school, and he was arrested in October 6th. Um, so, you know, I broke that story on your show a couple weeks ago and in the Daily Wire. And most of the media largely ignored it because they said it was unsubstantiated. Um, two days ago, Barack Obama alluded to it while campaigning with uh, Terry McAuliffe, calling it phony right-wing outrage. Uh, yesterday, everything was substantiated in court, including a bizarre detail that the fact that this kid was wearing a skirt is actually central to his defense. He claims that his wristwatch got caught on the skirt he was wearing while he was hanging out in the girl's bathroom, and that caused inadvertent sexual contact to occur. So Barack Obama, who really is a heartless monster, and I'm glad that's clear to everyone now, Describe the rape of a child as phony right-wing outrage? That This is what, you know, he's talking about parents being up in arms in Virginia and basically claiming it's all cultural war stuff. First of all, I never really cared about the fact that this is transgender. The bigger issue here is that school districts do not have the same priorities as parents. And that's, that's really right. what Terry McAuliffe hit the nail on the head with saying, you know, he doesn't think parents should be telling schools what to teach. The head of the teachers union said something similar this week. So the issue is what's the appropriate role for parents in schools? And the Democrats seem to think they don't have one. Um, these are our kids. We're going to raise them in these government schools. Um, the problem is the, the, the main case study that they had for this parents are bad movement it turned out to be a total hoax. I mean, this guy who was arrested and, you know, he looks like a blue collar guy. He's angry at school board meeting. They thought he was a bigot. Maybe he was opposed to masks. The clip that the media had the whole time of him, you can hear his wife screaming at the end as, as her husband is hauled away in handcuffs. My daughter was raped in school and this is what happened. So no one asked this guy why he was mad. We also found out uh, this week that the White House worked with the National School Boards Association to write the letter that called this guy and other parents domestic terrorists, which the F, which the DOJ then the used to justify president. FBI involvement. Yeah. So your daughter gets raped in a school bathroom. The school doesn't care or even keep track of the rape. And then you get denounced by the president and the DOJ as a domestic terrorist for complaining about it. it really does tell you everything. And we wouldn't know this without your reporting. Luke Rosiak, thank you. Thank you. Get um, it? Huh. Huh. So now we're all terrorists, right? When we go to school board meetings. And this is why everybody... See, see, see how the bait goes. They use the shit that I said, right? And what we did with the federal lawsuits, and they wanted us to be labeled as terrorists. There is a list 
of crimes that parents do supposedly and that um, they have requested, um, uh, you know, they have feds everywhere uh, demanding that parents get, you know, put in their place for even thinking of appearing. They have the most disgusting rhetoric ever. And, you know, Josh Howley and um, Senator uh, Tom Cotton actually did an amazing job. I want to listen. I want you guys to listen to Josh Howley first. Here we go. Justified. On this letter from the National School Board Association that we now know the White House was involved in writing, they've retracted the letter. They've apologized for the letter. They say they regret the letter, but you won't retract the memo and said earlier that you have no regrets. And you've defended yourself repeatedly today before this committee by saying, well, you're focused on violence. But now, of course, we've seen the memo from your own Justice Department advising state and local and other prosecutors about all of the different federal causes of action that they can bring against parents that are not about violence, they're about harassment and intimidation. I'm looking here at this memo. It identifies no fewer than 13 possible federal crimes involving harassment and intimidation, including making annoying phone calls. Do you think a parent who makes a phone call to a school board member that she has elected, that that school board member deems annoying should be prosecuted, General Garland? No, I don't. And the Supreme Court has made quite clear that the word intimidation with respect to the constitutional protection is one that directs a threat to a person with the intent of placing the victim in fear of bodily harm or death. Prosecutors who investigate these cases know the Supreme Courts. This is a, a, a very famous uh, leading case. Pro prosecutors do, but, but parents don't, General Garland. Do you, do you think that a parent who looks at the 13 different federal crimes that your Justice Department has identified they might be subject to and prosecuted for, like making annoying phone calls, do you think that they're going to feel that they're welcome to speak up at a school board meeting? How about this one? They could be prosecuted for using the internet, I guess that would be Facebook, in a way that might cause emotional distress to a victim. Is that a, is that a crime of violence? Senator, I haven't seen the memo that you're Why talking about. Why haven't you? And I don't, I, and I, I, even from the description, it doesn't sound like it was addressed to parents. But if you No, it wasn't addressed to parents, it was addressed to prosecutors. That's the problem. Why haven't you seen the memo? I, I, I don't know why I haven't. I don't look at every. I have. I do not get every memo that every U.S. attorney uh, sends out. But I, if you're wait, wait, wait a minute. Don't, don't, I, I just want to be sure I understand this. This this is a memorandum that collects 13 different federal crimes parents could be charged with. It has United States Department of Justice on the top of it, and you're telling me you haven't seen it. Who's the memo from, Senator? The United States Department of Justice, United States Attorney for the District of Montana. I have not seen a memo from the District of Montana. I not high enough priority for you? It's not, that's not the question. I don't... It is I, the question. Answer my question. Is it not a high enough priority for you when you're threatening parents with 13 different federal crimes? I, These aren't crimes of violence. You've testified today. You're focused on violence. That's not what your U.S. attorneys... They work for you. That's not what they're saying. You haven't seen it because it's not a high enough priority, or what? Not a question of priority. No one has sent me that memo, so I haven't seen it. What do you mean no one has sent you the memo? You run the United States Department of Justice, do you not? There are 115,000 employees of the Department of Justice. Indeed, and you are in charge of every one of them. And, and this is a sufficiently important case that you issued a memo. 
You, over your signature, issued a memo involving the FBI and the Department of Justice in local school boards, local school districts. Your U.S. attorneys are now threatening prosecution with 13 different crimes, but it's not a high enough priority for you. It got lost in the mix. I'll send again. I've never seen that memo. It was That's what concerns me. me, General Garland. Well, it wasn't sent to me. I hope you will assure your constituents that what we are concerned about here is violence and threats of violence. That only leads That's me to conclude, way. General That's Garland, all I can conclude from this is either that you're not in control of your own department or that more likely what I think to be the case is that you knew full well that this is exactly the kind of thing that would happen. When you issued your memo, when you involved the Department of Justice and all of its resources, and the FBI and all of its resources in local school boards and local school districts, you knew that federal prosecutors would start collecting crimes that they could use against parents. You knew they would advise state and local officials that these are all of the ways parents might be prosecuted. You knew that that was the likely outcome, and that's exactly what's happened. And we're talking about parents like Scott Smith, who's behind me over my shoulder. This is a father from Loudoun County, Virginia. Here he is at a school board meeting. He was forcibly restrained. He was assaulted. He was arrested. Why? Because he went to an elected school board meeting. He's a voter, by the way. He went to an elected school board meeting to raise the fact that his daughter was assaulted, sexually assaulted, in a girl's restroom by a boy. This is what happened to him. Now, you testified last week before the House that you didn't know anything about this case. I find that extraordinary because the letter that you put so much weight on, the letter that's now been retracted, it cites this case. It cites Mr. Scott's case directly. There's a news article cited in the letter. It's discussed in the letter, but you testified you just couldn't remember it. Maybe this will refresh your memory. Do you think people like Scott Smith, do you think parents who show up to complain about their children being assaulted ought to be treated like this man right here? Parents who show up to complain about school boards are protected by the First Amendment. Do you think that they ought to be prosecuted they in the different protected. ways that your U.S. attorneys are identifying? If what they're doing is complaining about what the school board is doing, policies, curriculum, anything else that they want to, as long as they're not committing threats of violence, then they should not be prosecuted, and they can't be. Let me ask you about this. Several of my Democrat colleagues have today, just today in this hearing, multiple times have compared parents who show up at school board meetings, like Mr. Smith here, have compared them to criminal rioters. You think that's right? You think that a parent who shows up at a school board meeting, who has a complaint, who wants to voice that complaint, and maybe she doesn't use exactly the right grammar, you think they're akin to criminal rioters? Do you agree with that? I do not, and I do not remember any senator here making that comparison. Oh, really? These people are just like the folks who came here on January 6th and in, in, in the riot at the Capitol? I don't think it was, they were referring to the picture that you're showing there. Well, I certainly would hope not, but they were referring to parents who go to school board meetings. Mr. Smith is a parent who went to a school board meeting. I'll leave it at this, General Garland. You have weaponized the FBI and the Department of Justice. Your U.S. attorneys are now collecting and cataloging all the ways that they might prosecute parents like Mr. Smith because they want to be involved in their children's education and they want to have a say in their elected officials. It's wrong. It is unprecedented, to my knowledge, in the history of this country, and I call on you to resign. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Boom. So we started that.
It was all us that were going into these meetings. We started it. Let's go down there. Let's get this done. People were like, it's fucking masks. Shut up. First the mask, then the jobs. Now, a lot of people are like, well, you know, my kid's not going to get a jab. My kid's not going to do this. Well, I can tell you one thing. (laughs) They've already started. Now, again, I say this, you know, a little bit upset, I guess, only because how the heck did I not see it? Sorry. How the heck did I not see it? But um, it turns out that in my daughter's school, aside from being, uh, you know, funded by the UN and all these organizations, I found out more, even more. So I guess my response is going to be pretty fire soon. But when you send your kids to school, they kind of get the same lunch tables as prisoners, food slop like prisoners, and they're educated on how they need to talk, how they need to walk, right? That That's how it is, right? That's how they do it. And um, But did you know that some of them actually have clinics on site? Yeah, they do. Here we go. At the Wellness Center, we provide a pretty good amount of services. Matter of fact, we probably provide uh, more services than most minute clinics or... um... I just wanted to say, this is at Mayfield School District. They provide flu shots, biometrics, physicals, well visit, minor injuries, mental health services, skin condition, health maintenance exam, women's health exams, vaccinations, and more. Urgent care centers. The services here at the Wildcat Health Clinic are open to anybody who has the insurance benefit, the health insurance benefit, as well as those who uh, have the life insurance benefit. When an employee walks in our clinic, uh, they'll be greeted by Jacinta Jones, who is the medical assistant at the front desk. She will get them signed in and then get them taken back to a room. We have a a very very gracious space. There's three exam rooms and a very confidential setting. Um, Invite anybody who hasn't been here to come on over and take a look. It's really quite nice. The fact that Mayfield provides this service to their employees to me means that they value them incredibly so. It's a wonderful service, but it makes me think that they value the employee, they value their relationship, uh, and they want to keep them well, as well as give them an opportunity to access medical care. The Wellness Center is actually in the high school. It's in the rear of the building, and we're located right So the Wellness Center is at my daughter's high school, at the rear of the building, where students and staff can actually attend. They do vaccinations and vaginal exams on site. I wonder if they ever did abortions. That would be a great question to ask. But this is so weird. Um, so weird. No wonder they have people from the Cleveland Clinic sitting on their foundation. So within the school, there's a clinic. I just wanted to, who the fuck is paying for all this, right? Who's paying for all this, right? Right? I mean, come on, out of all the schools in Cleveland that I pick for my daughter, I get this one. I mean, is it happenstance, happen chance that I get that there. Oh, by the way, there's a school board and then they have a foundation where they do galas and they rake in about a hundred thousand, but they spend 50,000 on the drinks and the party. So they really make 50,000 
And then the people that are on the foundation actually get all the architecture and other business deals that have to do with the school. So the Cleveland Clinic built a clinic within the school grounds. Uh, this is a problem, but let's continue. Right next to the fitness center where the blue canopy is. The easiest way to make an appointment to see us is through um, mywildcatbenefits.com online. Uh, there's a um, scheduling system there that's very easy to manage. So interesting. So interesting, isn't it? So weird. So freaking weird. Isn't it weird? So weird. So <laughs> it's just astonishing how these people are fighting me that they haven't implemented a healthcare fucking system with my tax dollars on school ground. I don't give a shit if it's for, oh, it's targeted for our employees, but the students can use it too. I don't give a shit. I shouldn't have to pay for the healthcare facility of the teachers to be there. And you know what's so funny? My daughter goes to high school that they call Wildcat. I am a UK Wildcat. I mean, the, the, the synchronicity of this is just insane, but that's okay. Cause they're going to lose hard, fucking hard. Um, this is just more on it. I mean, come on, there's more. Um, I want you guys to see Senator Cotton go at, um, Merrick Garland. Uh, he did a fantastic, As the base a fantastic job, um, talking about how parents are now terrorists. Remember the left right now are in a position where these idiots get offended with everything. They consider everything a threat. Even my communications to them, I'm going to fucking remove you and you're going to pay for the crimes that you committed. I mean, $600 million. What? With a student, with students, about 4,000 students, you have $600 million in the bank. The fuck are you doing? So there we go. Excuse my French. I get so irritated so irritated on that stuff. So irritated. But I digress because I know a lot of you have other schools in your own states and cities that do the same crap. So let's take a listen to this super slap in the face. This is That's wrong. Shameful. Judge, That's, this is shameful. This, here, this testimony, your directive, your performance is shameful. That's not correct. Thank God you are not on the Supreme Court. You should resign in disgrace, Judge. On May 11th, Tony Fauci testified that his agency, quote, has not ever and does not now fund gain-of-function research in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Last week, his agency admitted that they had, in fact, funded gain-of-research uh, in the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Are you investigating Tony Fauci for lying to Congress? So the long-time rule in the Justice Department not to discuss pending investigations, potential investigations. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Um, do you believe Tony Fauci was truthful when he said his agency had never funded gain-of-function research? This is outside of my scope of okay. knowledge. Let, let's turn to your outrageous directive sicking the feds on parents at school boards across America. When you crafted that October 4th memo, did you consult with senior leadership at the FBI? My understanding was that the memo um, or the idea of the memo had been discussed with the FBI before. Did anyone at the FBI express any doubt or disagreement or hesitation with your decision to issue that memo? No one expressed that to me. No one? To me. No one expressed that to me. No. 
a lot of them have contacted us and they said they did, Judge. I'm sorry? A lot of FBI officials have contacted my office and said that they oppose this decision. Well, I doubt any of them spoke to me about it because I didn't speak to, to uh, no one. All right. All right. To me. Uh, Judge, you've repeatedly, you've repeatedly dissembled this morning about that directive. For instance, about the National Security Division. Chuck Grassley asked you a very simple question, why you would sick the National Security Division of the Department of Justice on parents. Don Cornyn asked you the same thing. You said it wasn't in your October 4th memorandum. It was in another office's memorandum. It was another office's memorandum, Judge. It was in a press release from your office right here in front of me, October 4th, 2021, for immediate release. You're going to create a task force that includes the National Security Division. What on earth does the National Security Division have to do with parents who are expressing disagreements at school boards? Nothing in this memorandum or any memorandum is about parents expressing disagreements with their school boards. The memorandum makes clear that uh, parents are entitled and protected by the First Amendment to have vigorous debates. We don't, uh, uh, the Justice Department is not interested in that question at all. It is oh, okay, so even in that case, what, what is the National Security Division, Judge? The national, these are the people that are supposed to be chasing jihadists and Chinese spies. What is the National Security Division to do with parents at school boards? This is not, again, about parents at school boards. It's about threats of violence. Okay, let me, let me turn to that because you've said that phrase repeatedly throughout the morning. Threats or violence and threats of violence, violence and threats of violence. Yeah. We've heard it a dozen times this morning. As Senator Lee pointed out, the very first line in your October 4th memorandum refers to harassment and intimidation. Why do you continue to dissemble in front of this committee that you are only talking about violence and threats of violence when your memo says harassment and intimidation? Senator, I said in, it, uh, in my testimony that it involved other kinds of criminal conduct and, the, and I explained to Senator Lee that the uh, statutory definitions of those terms and the constitutional definitions of those terms involve threats of violence. Okay, let's look at one of those statutes you cited, yeah. Section 223. Yeah. That statute covers the use of not just telephones, but telecommunications devices to annoy, to annoy someone. So are, are you going to sick your U.S. attorneys and the FBI on a parents group if they post on Facebook? Something that annoys a school board member, well, Judge? The answer to that is no. And the, the provision that I was particularly uh, drawing to his attention was 2261A, which was to engage... I wasn't talking about 2261A. I know you mentioned that. You also mentioned 223. That's what I mentioned. Yeah. But the okay, only you, kind... Judge, you also, told, you also told Senator Klobuchar that this memorandum was about meetings and coordination. Yeah. Meetings and coordination. Yeah. Well, well, I have in my hand right here that I'll submit to the record a letter from one of your U.S. attorneys to all of the county attorneys, to the attorney general, to all sheriffs, to the school board association of his state, in which he talks about federal investigation and prosecution. It's not about meetings, it's not about coordination, it's about federal investigation and prosecution. Did you, did you direct your U.S. attorneys to issue such a letter? I did not. I have not seen that letter. My it's got three pages. It's got three pages well, my of spreadsheet my about all the federal crimes that a, that a parent could be charged with, to include the ones you cited. Did, did, my, my did Maine Justice make this spreadsheet, Judge? I don't have any idea. Uh, my did memorandum it? speaks specifically about setting up meetings, and I'll just read it again, convene meetings. Judge, we, we've all read your memorandum. Okay. We've also you heard you dissemble about your memorandum. I have, I have, and the record now shows, one of your U.S. attorneys 
sending out a letter about federal prosecution investigation and list in detail the federal statutes for which you could be prosecuted. Judge, you've talked a lot about intimidation and harassment. Have you issued a memorandum like your October 4th memorandum about the Black Lives Matter rights from last summer? You're talking about the summer of 2020? In the summer of 2020, there were a lot of crimes committed. People haven't been. There were a lot of prosecutions, and they were under the previous administration. Okay, Judge, what about this? It is no doubt you're, you're, even though parents at school boards aren't within federal jurisdiction, there's no doubt that federal officials are. You keep saying senators. Have you started an investigation into the harassment of Senator Kirsten Sinema in a bathroom? In a bathroom, because she won't go along with the Democratic Party's big tax and spend agenda? That is a sitting United States senator being harassed in a bathroom. I don't know whether the senator has referred the matter to the Justice Department or not. You've cited as the basis for that directive the National School Board Association's letter of September 29th. Was that directive being prepared before September 29th, before the School Board Association letter was issued? I don't believe so. Certainly, I didn't have any idea. So it was only prepared at, okay, I think that answers the question. I already answered that so, question So you, you keep citing the school board letter and news reports. That's news right. reports. One of the news right. reports cited in that letter, which you presumably mean, is from Loudoun County, Virginia. No, that's Scott, not, that is not um, uh, what I was talking about. Well, it, about you keep citing news reports, and that's the most prominent news report that anyone in America has seen. That refers to Scott Smith, whose 15-year-old daughter was raped she was raped in a bathroom by a boy wearing girls' clothes, and the Loudoun County School Board covered it up because it would have interfered with their transgendered policy during Pride Month. And that man, Scott Smith, because he went to a school board and tried to defend his daughter's rights, was condemned internationally. Do you apologize to Scott Smith and his 15-year-old daughter, Judge? Senator, anyone who is... A uh, child was raped as uh, is a, the most horrific crime I can imagine, and is certainly entitled and protected by the First Amendment to c- protest to their school board about that. But he was cited is, by the school board association that's fine, as a domestic not, terrorist, which we now know that letter and those reports were the basis for your. No, th- this no, is Senator, this is that's wrong. Shameful. Judge, that's, this is shameful. This here, this testimony, your directive, your performance is shameful. Okay. That's not. Th- cr- thank God you are not on the Supreme Court. You should resign in disgrace, Judge. He's all sorry, that stupid bitch. <laughs> General Garland, do you want to complete your answer? On- okay, I wasn't sure there was a question there, but let me be clear. The, the news reports I'm talking about were not the news reports in that letter. They were other news reports that everybody here has heard about, subsequent reports that everybody has heard about. We are, there is nothing in this memorandum, and I wish if senators were concerned about this, they would quote my words. This memorandum is not about parents being able to object in their school boards. They are protected by the First Amendment. As long as there are no threats of violence, they are completely protected. So parents can object to their school boards about curriculum, about the treatment of their children, um, about school policies. All of that is 100% protected by the First Amendment, and there is nothing in this memorandum contrary to that. We are only trying to prevent violence against school officials. Thank you. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. If you believe that, you believe everything. <laughs> Obama, there's some presents coming out for you. I want you to um, 
remember this. Now, I'm going to start a little bit of a showcase. You know, I like to showcase people. Remember when I showcased Jamie Raskin before the elections, just how important he was going to be? And, and you know, it was like early 2020 where we did this whole Jamie show. Well, I'm going to show you this show. This guy's really, really important. Important to me. So I'm going to introduce you to some guy. Some guy. There's like a joke about that. Comes that guy. Uh, do you remember this clown? Please tell me you do. You've got to remember this guy. Hold on. Guy eating Kentucky Fried Chicken at AG Bars. Hearing. Do you guys remember that clown? Do you remember him? You remember him eating Kentucky Fried Chicken? He thought he was so cool. Shit. Dang. Dang. I got this little bitch tied up. I'm just saying, look at him. Look at him. Pay attention. He's enjoying it. You're enjoying the show, right? Right? Look at him. Huh. Guy from Tennessee eating Kentucky chicken. And I want you to listen to this audio quickly of what he said about Marsha Blackburn. Being orange president, that's not somebody from Knoxville. He's going to come down here and he's going to endorse Marsha Blackburn. Because Marsha Blackburn, if he says, jump off the Harahan Bridge, she'll jump off the Harahan Bridge. I wish he'd say that. <laughs> he just said he wishes that Marsha Blackburn would jump off a bridge because she says, he said, if President Trump told her to jump off a bridge, she would. So it's important that he do that because we need to get her out, let her jump. Now, this man, he's in Tennessee. He's been a congressman forever. Every two years, he seems to be elected all the time, like all the time. He totally hates the GOP. I guess we share that commonality because I kind of feel like the GOP is like, as I said, like an MLM scam. The DNC and GOP, we give our local GOP that gives the regional GOP, that gives the state GOP, that gives the money to the big grand enchilada GOP. And then we have people like the Schlapps that tell us who we're going to, well, you know, on your state GOP, they decide which guy you're going to vote for. Because even if your guy goes up, they decide they don't put him on the ballot. They're just like, nope, we're only endorsing this. Who the fuck are you? No. But I'm going to take you back in time, about a decade. Let's see what this guy has to say and how he speaks. AC 360, CNN weeknights, 10 Eastern. How can you think that it's appropriate for a member of Congress on the floor of the House to compare the statements made by Republicans about health care to lies about Jews told by Joseph Goebbels and other Nazis? How is that appropriate? Well, appropriate because it was the same process. Obviously, I don't think Republicans are Nazis, but they used the same means that Goebbels used, which was to have a short, concise idea and repeat it over and over and over again. But you're essentially comparing them to Nazis. No, I don't think I was, and I certainly didn't intend to. And when you do a a uh, open uh, session like that uh, uh, on the floor, you speak off the cuff. But now Goebbels was the master of political propaganda. And as evil a man as he was, he was the master of this. And when people use it and use lies over and over and over again, whether it's killing grandma, 
whether it's government health takeover of health care or, or any of those things, somebody has to stand up and say, hey, wait a minute. But why? If, if you weren't trying to compare them to Nazis, you wouldn't have mentioned Nazis. I mean, you said their statements on health care are the same kind of lies that Nazis told. You I didn't said, say I didn't say Nazis. I said you said uh, Goebbels. He's I the, the chief propagandist for the Nazi party. He, and you said was, that and you said was. the Germans told lies about the Jews and that led to the Holocaust. You're it saying did. they're doing the same kind of thing that the Nazis did. That's comparing them. Well, I didn't intend to do that. I didn't think I did. He is the master political propagandist. And if he, he wrote treatises on it, he had rules. He is the major person. If you want to talk about political propaganda, the person you talk about who mastered it in terms of the big lie was Goebbels. So you're standing by the big lie is Goebbels. Remember what we found out? Remember, oh, I'm going to take you back in time. So first, oh, and I was lining up the other one. Damn it. Hold on. I forgot he said that, didn't I? I totally forgot he said that. Give me a second, because this is going to be fun. Hold on a second. Um, let me see. Is this it? I think this is it. Hold on. Let me just see that this is it. I'm going to show you my BLM video that I did months ago, right? Because I said Black Lives Matter. I told you that they were going to come with us. But no, Tori's so dumb. And it's like, mm, here's my Black Lives Matter video. Let's take a look at it quickly. 22% of Chicago's deaths have been among black Chicagoans. I stood before you and talked about the fact that black folks were dying at seven times the rate of any other demographic. Of course, African-Americans are being disproportionately affected by COVID-19 and DC is no exception. Blacks represent more than two times the cases of any other demographic. There are 79% of the 285 deaths in Washington, DC. This virus affects black people. It hits us more harshly. Corbett said, also said that Moderna has slowed down their enrollment in order to get more black people to enroll. They were only at 6% enrollment in a study and they stopped it and got it up to 10%, still not representative of the 14% of the population. Our COVID-19 coverage continues now with a closer look at the vaccines and why black people should trust them. Connecticut, for instance, I think it was quoted that 8% of individuals who are white who test, that test positive over 30% of individuals who are black are testing positive. They're knocking on hundreds of doors to build trust in getting the COVID-19 vaccine. The key to NYC pass will be a first in the nation approach. It will require vaccination. The pseudoscience of eugenics, more than 30 states passed laws allowing for the forced sterilization of so-called defectives. And took my child, and when they did that, they sterilized me. What do you think I'm worth? State officials declared Riddick feeble-minded and unfit to have children. The population question is a great concern today. Do you feel that birth control is essential to keep millions of people across the world from starving? Well, I think the birth control will to keep the population uh, more or less static until you pick up your society of certain undesirable traits. Main reason is because I was poor and out so now they're going to say because control of virus is racist it risks black people from going to the polls right so even if they do uh simply you know say hey you're wearing a mask you should be fine apparently black people are more prone you know what makes me wonder so we know that the elderly uh die really easy from anything right but 
What if the Democrats are actually killing black people to get numbers? Like, what if they're going after black Americans? I mean, do you doubt that? But see, nobody seems to remember history. Democrats are the racists. And so them purporting and saying that we're racist is just deflection. They, um, you know, make you think like the other side is the bad guy. So eugenicists in California sent this book to the Nazis. Yes, they did. You got more questions, but I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, then you ain't black. Huh? Do you remember that video that I put together? I'll share it in the in the links. Remember who was the one that sent off the book to the Nazis for girls? the New York City workers his, taking his, to the streets um, and shouting. It was shouting. his um his idea. They said right. It wasn't. It was actually California's. They gave him the idea, right? They gave him the idea of how to do it. That's facts super facts okay really up there facts so let's remember because we're nazis all of us were nazis this guy called us nazis the shit he said about elections too but i'm going to show you what role he's playing and what he played and what he's gonna play well can't tell you about what he's gonna play but i could tell you what role he's playing in all this crap we're going through now but let's just remind ourselves how we constantly say history repeats itself, but it's actually just an echo. Same plan, same scenarios, different characters, more spectators. Closer to the war and the war progressed. Then they changed. By the 24th of March, 1933, with the passage of the Enabling Act, Hitler had obtained the legal authority to govern by decree. And civil liberties were suspended for four years. Basically, he took over everything which gives a state the power to exercise power. And he used it very ruthlessly. They made it clear that anybody who resisted them was going to have a nasty time. That very quickly established their authority. Never underestimate the weapons of the state to dominate a population and control a population. Now unchecked by democratic restraint, Hitler had the power he needed to wage legislative war on the people who had always been his target. People he believed were a threat to his thousand-year Reich. Jewish people made up less than 1% of the population. But Hitler was intent on removing any Jewish influence on German society. New laws enabled the dismissal of Jewish professionals from government positions. In September, under the direction of Joseph Goebbels, Jews working in the media and publishing were dismissed, removing their voices from German cultural life. In 1935, the passage of the Nuremberg Laws enshrined persecution in law. Jews and gypsies were no longer citizens of the Reich. Marriage and extramarital relations with Aryans was also forbidden. The laws paved the way for the persecution which total war enabled. It normalized violence and persecution. Violence against Jewish people had been rife throughout the 1930s. But the most well-known incident was Kristallnacht, the night of the broken glass. And on November 9, 1938, over 7,000 Jewish stores were looted, nearly 200 synagogues destroyed, and one Jews killed 
and 30,000 transported to concentration camps. For Jews, it has had a deep impact on their consciousness and their memory because most Jews realize experiencing the burning of their synagogues, the destruction of their homes, and the terror in streets, it symbolized the end of a German-Jewish relationship, of what was also called the German-Jewish symbiosis. And most Jews gave up their hope or the notion that they still had a right to domicile in Germany. So that's why I think the CDC and the Biden administration needs to come out a lot bolder and say, if you're vaccinated, you can do all these things. Here are all these freedoms that you have. Far left radicals have become increasingly desperate and increasingly dangerous in their quest to transform America into a country you would not recognize, a country in which they control every aspect of American life. Just as socialist and communist movements have done all over the world, they're cracking down on all dissent and demanding absolute conformity. They want total control. So I put up that video in April, right? See how, how it's right there, isn't it? But we're going to continue because we need to see, you know, who this person is and why we're in this position. Because, you know, I know a lot of us watched 1984 and it was actually quite terrifying. It was over-exaggerated and you would think people aren't that stupid. But now when you watch it with today's eyes and ears, you know, you, 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 you see that it can actually be reality. You know, uh, it's, it's startling, you know, that these unpleasant conversations, difficult conversations that I've said many years ago, we have a lot of difficult conversations to do. Our future looks like that book. Only that book was over-exaggerated, but is it? Because you're in the middle of it. You know, the world is actually in that place right now. It just hasn't gone to that extreme yet. Emotions are fear, rage, right? Self-abasement, you know, sexual instinct. You're not supposed to have it. Uh, you know, you shouldn't, you know, feel love. It should be about procreation. You should have incubators in your house because, you know, you may want children, but you don't have a vagina or, you know, a, a womb, you know, because, but you can breastfeed like Pete Buttigieg showed us. He can put on fake boobs and feed a baby um, with boobs, which is, makes me hurl just thinking about it. The only loyalty we see from these people is to the party, right? And the party, right, is who? The Praetorians. See, the one thing I've said about Praetorians is that they protect a leader, not the people. Praetorians protect leaders, not people. Some of you may think that there's good Praetorians. If they're a fucking Praetorian, they're protecting a leader, not the people. The job of a Praetorian is to protect a person. So we've got the Obama administration that was working in the background during a Trump administration and now working during this administration pretty much from a basement in an earpiece telling Nancy Pelosi what to do. There's proof for that too. But that'll come later. 
Because what you, what we didn't see is the people that actually made that, they put the nails on our coffin. And you didn't even know about it. Because usually when big legislation goes through, you know about it, right? But every single person that's in the Senate, Congress, sitting in a cushy SDS position, president, vice president, staff, or whatever, they're intoxicated with power. We see it with people on social media. They think they're important. They think, uh, you know, my opinion is more important. My shit is more important. You need to bow down to me. I don't speak to peasants. And they get intoxicated with that power. And that's where they lose. They lose with that intoxication of power. That is what happens. So... 1984 has been here for a while. At every moment that we see, they these people have like this really sick, because these people are sick, feeling in, in like excitement, excitement that they've just dominated you and took away your rights and you're a peasant. I don't know if you realize that. I've expressed how I had a six-month period in my life where I felt that and it was dark and it was dangerous. And it was like, what? You have no idea what I can do to you. Like, why would you do that? You have to be in a really dark, I was in a dark place. Um, and that's where, you know, I felt, oh, this is not good. This is not a good feeling to have, but it's a, like a drug. It is like a drug. And the people that rule you, because they do rule you, you are not free right now, get off on the sensation that they're taking out their enemy that's helpless. You're the fucking enemy. They hate you. They hate you. You're like a nagging gnat. Nagging gnat. Like, how dare you speak to me? Do you know who I am? And so what we're at is you have to realize boots on your face is closer than anything right now. This is a nightmare. Nightmerica as um, Tom McDonald coined. The only solution that you have to this is to not let it fucking happen. I think even George Orwell himself in an interview said that the only solution to something like that is to not let it happen. So right now, all of you are taking actions to ensure this does not happen, no matter what your color, no matter what anything. And you know, a lot of people hate, and it's like, stop, you could hate me now, but I'm going to tell you what, later you're going to freaking love me. Because the only way you win is by giving knowledge to the people, empowering the people, and moving ahead. Do you know how much hate I had? Oh, you have no idea. I've been called everything under the sun. People had their experts talk to me, about me, with me. They even drugged me at some point. Guys, I've been trained to lie under drugging. Are you kidding? You know, I've had my life threatened. I had people mock me, fat shame me. And it's like, you're fat shaming me. Like if I could help it, I'd fix it. Right. But I got a tumor that's not letting me do things. I'd have to work out all day, every day to get rid of it. 
Like, why would you do that? Why would you try to egg me like that when I'm trying to save my nation? Why would you say things like that? But you know what? They would talk shit about me four years ago, five years ago, three years ago, two years ago, one year ago, and slowly all of them fade away. They can't deny that they were wrong all along. You do not need leaders. You do not need to be told where to go. You're not fucking stupid. You're not sheep. Yes, you acted like sheep. Yes, you did this. But every single time you try to guide them and you give them a leader and say, follow this guy. He's going to tell you everything you need. Follow this. That's where you fail. See, the number one thing that I saw, and this is why jihadists and shit were effective, right? Is that they made leaders out of everyone to take charge. And it's like, okay, so you see this. I mean, they're all leaders. Good leaders are like our president, President Trump. He was with us, not for us. Like, we didn't have to be for him. He said, I'm with you. I'm not going to brag doing my nail thing, but I did start that shit on Twitter. Okay. She says I'm with her. He said, I'm with you, right? He is with us. He's just like us because he's fighting for the nation. Cause he's part of it too. All these other people on their pedestals fight as if they're in another country and you're in another one. And this is the problem. They think you're all stupid. They think you all need proper direction and a good leader. No, you don't. No, you don't. You absolutely, what you need is knowledge. What you need is to understand how to take control of the situation. You know, um, the way, okay, so I think it was like two summers ago, we had the Ministry of Truth from Adam Schiff, if you remember, the silencing of people, and everyone was thinking, you know, what is domestic propaganda? Now, as you know, I bring a few articles and did a couple shows on Michael Hastings. And we had this conversation in 2012 where, um, you know, after he was, uh, you know, writing up stuff about generals, I communicated to him to give him some really important documents in regards to how they were turning out propaganda. And it was actually very important. And um, this is like, when was I in Cal like 2011? Um, and we met early 2012. So, you know, in that documentation, it indicated just how propaganda turns. I mean, obviously it was all about, um, you know, um, creating news cycles and owning the news, which now they shamelessly own because even in their bill, they put money to pay the media. But when I gave them this documentation, it was evidence that they were turning out propaganda to come back to the U.S. from the State Department. We've talked about this so many times. The Arab Spring shit. And you know what pissed me off? The reason I got in contact with him is because I have actually said this, so I can say this publicly. I was the one that booked the boat a year before Benghazi to get Chris Stevens uh, across um, to where he needed to go. I booked it. I did that. I 
coordinated that transport via Greece. I did that. So I knew something was up when I saw that a certain division of the State Department was active. And I've, and I, yeah, and I did tell you guys about this a long time ago, but I'm just repeating it. So when Ambassador Stevens, before he was ambassador, a year earlier, he went to Benghazi. And to get him there, I organized the boat transport. I did the decoy. I did all of that, right? I coordinated that. And so I also saw um, back in 2011 that they were mobilizing specific units of the State Department. Remember who was Secretary of State uh, back in the day, right? I'm just saying they were mobilizing units um, to that that were used to create propaganda. And I ran that through you guys with that episode we did on the Arab Spring, right? Um, obviously, because he successfully did what he did, he was then appointed ambassador. Um, so he became the ambassador. And that was more so a punishment. Uh, he, he realized that he was in trouble because, you know, even though there were bad actors there from State Department, there were a few people that, you know, I had a little bit of blackmail on <laughs> and could kind of like be like, oh, what's this picture? Shit. What's that? So they kind of rounded about without saying it, were inching that something was up. So he knew it was it was a big problem. I, I knew it was a big problem because they were going to put me to be the linguist there, but I had gotten pregnant with Phoebe and could not fulfill the training and the orders for that. So I knew that was a problem since I was um, already in, in, in the shitter with them. Um, so, you know, I arranged that transport. I know what happened in Benghazi straight out. And I knew the division that was creating the propaganda. And that's something that I had um, kind of laymanly expressed um, to Michael Hastings and others. Because what you don't know is, is that the Pentagon, the Department of Defense, uh, kind of like in other articles that I wrote, right, where they took Twitter and they used it as uh, DARPA used it to see how they can influence opinions with Bradley slash Chelsea Manning stuff. I, I wrote about that, um, you know, years ago, you can find it on Tori says.com, which by the way, I'm going to fix my website. Cause it's like crazy with a lot of stuff, but just give me like 15 days and I'll get it tidied up for you guys. I just need the time to get it done. But, um, I had told you that because the people that have no check, no boundaries, no nothing are the Pentagon. The same people that have an interest in a lot of software that I've talked about because they were all part of those conversation. So um, Pentagon is unchecked and there's a specific division in the State Department that does it. This is why I always tell you people, the State Department is worse than the CIA, right? Because most of them are agency working under the guise of State Department. I, I'm, I'm just making that clear. So, um, you know, this is, this is a, a big deal, but how did that happen is the question. How do we get to the point where, you know, this is all, um, not a big deal. Um, you know, this is totally normal. So this guy's my, my, my target for you guys, right? This guy, this guy, he's mine. He's mine. And what's, <laughs> what's funny 
what's funny is, is that I was slammed down these past couple of days, um, recovering and, and it was quite painful, but it was because of that. And I'll tell you why. First, I'm going to introduce you to what is fascism, right? Freedom of speech is freedom from rhetoric, right? If you're not allowed to speak outside of the rhetoric, then you have no freedom of speech. Take a listen. Rhetoric, eco-new growing up in fascist Italy, was the cheapening of language, the emptying of all nuance, the slogan for the slogan's sake, and the deferring of critical thinking to the Duce, the Führer. When the fascist regime in Italy fell, the newspapers were full of stories of other parties, other viewpoints, of debate. That's when Eco discovered that freedom of speech is freedom from rhetoric. But what's actually going on when we use terms like fascist? It comes from the Italian fascismo, which literally means bundle of sticks, but how does its meaning change over time? In contrast to ideologies like liberalism or socialism, fascism as a concept has been notoriously difficult to define. One popular definition comes from historian Stanley G. Payne. He argues that fascism is defined by three things. First, the fascist negations, that it's anti-something, anti-communist, anti-liberal, etc. Second, the fascist goals, that it aims to create a nationalist dictatorship and regulate the economy. And third, the fascist style, that it has a distinct populist aesthetic that romanticizes something, i.e. the past. Another concise definition comes from Roger Griffin, who defines it as palingenetic ultranationalism. Palingenetic meaning rebirth. The problem is that some examples of fascism fall outside of any definition. Eco said that while he agreed fascism had no quintessence, was a fuzzy totalitarianism, and that it was philosophically out of joint, it nonetheless was firmly fastened to some archetypal foundations. He argues that fascism involves 14 things. A cult of tradition, the rejection of modernism, of enlightenment, of the individual. Action for action's sake, instead of thought, a distrust of intellectuals. Disagreement is treason. Disagreement is diversity, while fascism seeks consensus. A mass frustration. Common purpose, nationalism, communitarianism. A sense of humiliation, an unjust but powerful enemy, say. Life is lived for the struggle, a contempt for the weak, everyone can be the hero, machismo, power, weaponry, sexual prowess, selective populism, majority will, a new speak, impoverished language. But how many of these are necessary for someone to be a fascist? Historian Roger Griffin describes a fascist minimum, but where does that lie? How many points are involved? A final approach emphasizes fascism's incoherence, that fascism was so varied that any attempt to define it will be bound to fail, 
And on top of this, the dictators were incoherent anyway, with no coherent ideology. If this is true, does that mean that the term too is imprecise and then useless? The sociologist Max Weber argued that any concept had an ideal type. All concepts have a number of elements in common, even though some of them could be missing from any individual case. Take a dog. You could describe it as having four legs, two eyes, a tail, it barks, etc. But it can have three legs and still be a dog. It can not bark and still be a dog. So what's going on philosophically when we describe a certain person or a certain state of affairs as fascist? Are we really just describing? Up until the early 20th century, most philosophers of language thought that language was just that, describing the world. But in the 50s, the British philosopher J.L. Austin gave a series of lectures that changed that. Building upon Ludwig Wittgenstein's observation that we engage in what he called language games, Austin argued that in speaking, we're not just describing things, but doing something in describing them. And understanding that doing was central to any philosophical problem. Austin was engaging in a kind of linguistic phenomenology. He saw that utterances could be descriptive. They could describe some state of affairs in the world, like the cat is on the mat. These statements were true or false and could be, or should be at least, verifiable. But statements or utterances could also be what he called performative. That is, they're not describing the world, but doing something. Take the phrase, I do, at a wedding. Or the statement, I name this ship Queen Elizabeth. Or, I bet you five pounds that that dog will win the race. These statements, these performatives, don't just describe, they're not true or false, but are doing something at the time of their utterances. They are producing a new set of social affairs. Austin argued that these performatives were subject to convention, that there are a certain set of rules that are understood by those engaged in the performative act. You understand the rules and traditions of the wedding and what it involves. You understand the nature of a dog race and a bet. Austin goes on to make a further argument, though, that rather than any statement being descriptive or performative, all use of language has a performative dimension. He said any utterance has three components. The locutionary act, the illocutionary act, and the perlocutionary act. The locutionary act is the saying of something receivable, the description or the articulation of something meaningful that other people can understand. When I say the cat is sat on the mat, I am describing a state of affairs that I believe you will be able to receive and comprehend. The illocutionary act is the force that utterance has, the way I'm doing something in uttering it. If I say the cat is sat on the mat to my partner who's about to feed the cat, it has a very different meaning than if I say the phrase as a school teacher teaching grammar. Or take the phrase, the ice is thin. That phrase might be uttered in a chemistry class with one meaning, but it might also be shouted by a policeman at someone walking on ice. 
Again, these are two very different meanings, and we have to understand the particular context, the performative context, to understand what's going on. Austin describes a number of ways an act can be illocutionary. Acts can appraise, assess, can order or vote, can promise, bet, deny, congratulate, thank. But they all have something in common. They're creating a set of affairs, not just describing them. The perlocutionary act is the consequence, the way the message is received by the other person and the world in general. The conventions and context must be understood by those involved for the performative to be successfully acted out. Austin describes this as being felicitous or infelicitous, meaning successful or unsuccessful. The circumstances, the conventions and the rules should be appropriate, understood and agreed upon for the utterance to be acted out felicitously. At a wedding, there's a set of social, cultural and personal assumptions about what happens when you say, I do. You have to have a transparent and honest understanding of all of them for the performative to be successful in the future. You have to be serious. You have to be compassmentous. There have to be witnesses of some kind. You can't already be married, etc. The act must be well executed, not misunderstood, misapplied or what Austin describes as misfiring. The fall of Benito Mussolini echoed louder than the Allied guns. Benito, for 21 years, a fascist Caesar. Now this, from his own countrymen. So how can this help us understand political concepts like fascism? One major point is to understand and reflect upon what any utterance is doing. And it means looking at the context in which it's uttered. Political labels are used by politicians to describe what they themselves believe in, in an attempt to persuade others to believe in those things too. At the same time, citizens use them to describe themselves and who they're likely to support or agree with. So when a person describes someone as a fascist, what are they doing? Well, there's the locutionary act that the person being called a fascist is being labelled with some combination of the elements we discussed before. Which of these the accuser uses is actually usually unknown and assumed, at least unless there is some further reflection or investigation. Then there's the illocutionary act, the performance. The assumption, today at least, is that the person calling the person a fascist and wider society has attached a negative value judgment to the concept of fascism. The performative is one that asserts or recommends the exclusion of the person from public discourse at the very least. It's an attempt to convince others that the person is dangerous. The point of political discourse, at its most essential, is to convince others of the value of a position. Building a majority position in Modern politics is, of course, fundamental. The illocutionary act is an attempt to build as big a majority position as possible, what Antonio Gramsci called hegemony, which is why the perlocutionary act is also important. It's the effect the act has, how it's received, what happens in the wider world when the term fascist is used. 
when someone calls someone a fascist, the illocutionary act, it seems to me, is to evaluate, convince, and ideally exclude the person from respectable discourse. This possible exclusion and the intent to exclude is only possible because of the way we've collectively devalued fascism societally. It seems that for the act to be received felicitously by the conventions, by the rules of the game, the receiver has to agree with the description and to agree that the person should be excluded from public conversation. This would make a successful, felicitous act. The intention being to convince as many people as possible of your point. This is precisely why precision in terminology is so important. If it's used without accuracy, it loses its potency and becomes less valuable. Returning to Eco's 14 points, we have an ideal type in each of our minds, differing from person to person, of how many of these principles we think are required for a person to be fascistic. So now looking at these principles, number one, a cult of tradition. Number two, the rejection of modernism. Number three, action for action's sake. Number four, disagreement is treason. Number five, disagreement is diversity. Number six, mass frustration. Number seven, common purpose. Number eight, a sense of humiliation. Number nine, life is lived for the struggle. Number 10, a contempt for the weak. Number 11, everyone can be the hero. Number 12, machismo, which means to be a mass, masochist. <laughs> Number 13, selective populism. Number 14, newspeak. Now, right now, if you haven't realized that the people that rule you are fascists, you obviously aren't paying attention. We have action for action's sake right? If you disagree with them, it's treasonous. No matter who you are, you are the enemy. They're doing all of this for a common purpose. Everyone is frustrated. They, if they believe that you should be humiliated for your color, right? They have contempt for the weak, those that are old and sick. Well, the ones that are in their thrones right now feel like, I mean, elected people, right? Uh, are the ones they're masochists. They don't care that they killed all those people. They were fine. They do have selective populism. And lo and behold, the news speak. We're there. So they fulfilled more than many. Disagreement is diversity. <laughs> I mean, come on. They're not rejecting modernism. They want to propel it forward. So they're not the backwards type of fascists, right? They're the going forward type of fascists. That should be in there as 15 or the acceleration of modernism. But everything that you see is a masochist means that you like to see people suffer, right? Machismo. Um, well, it's masochismo. So would it be machism? <laughs> Suffrage. But these are progressive fascists basically. And we are living in a fascist environment, but how did we get here? So I'm going to take you back in time to 2011, where your wonderful Lindsey Graham gave a nice talk. And the ACLU purported it, you know, the ACLU that hates anything conservative, spotlighted it.
The Senate recently passed a bill. Uh, yeah. A bill that would authorize the president to send the military literally anywhere in the world to detain civilians, even American citizens, without charge or trial. And to those American citizens thinking about helping al-Qaeda, please know what will come your way. Death, detention, prosecution. And when they say, I want my lawyer, you tell them, shut up. Your time is expired. Get a lawyer. You're an enemy combatant, and we're going to talk to you about why you joined al-Qaeda. The House and Senate will be voting again in the next few days on a final version of the bill. So why am I pointing this out? What about the January 6th people that are now imprisoned? Everyone's outraged. What the heck is going on here? Like, there's no end. Well, you know, they signed this little piece of shit in in the NDAA that says you can indefinitely jail American citizens. I mean, indefinite detention of American citizens is actually the title. And need to hear from you now. Because Congress shouldn't tell any American citizen needing a lawyer to shut up, shut up, shut up. To take action, go to www.aclu.org slash fix NDA. The Senate recently passed a bill. Uh, yeah. A bill that would authorize the president. The people from January 6th are still in prison. Indefinite detainment. I'm pointing this out to you because it's important you remember a little bit of that. But, you know, in 2017, I talked about the NDAA on Hagman, you know, because I didn't know what I'm talking about all the time. Obviously, I have no idea what I'm talking about. I'm just great at Google. Um, But it was really important for people to listen to that because it tells you everything you need to know for today. Um, I was very um, excited to have him speak with me. Um, and what I discussed about um, genetic targeting and the NDAA. Um, A lot of people think it's only during the Obama time. It happened from before that too. Uh, It does, they change things slowly so you don't pay attention. Kind of like this. I'm going to take you back in time to an act that was actually passed that you probably never even heard of. I hope you guys are ready for this one because you're going to be pissed. You're going to be really, really pissed Now you're going to understand why I've chosen him and because he has a big mouth. Together with Congressman Darrell Issa, H.R. 2765, to protect Americans' First Amendment rights against the threat posed by libel tourism, a new term in our vocabulary. The House passed that bill by voice vote under suspension of the rules. The 110th Congress had also passed that bill in this House as well. Last week, the Senate passed by unanimous consent an amended version of H.R. 2765 named the Securing the Protection of Our Enduring and Established Constitutional Heritage Act, or speech. We consider the Senate version today. Libel tourism is the name given to the practice of doing an end run around the First Amendment by suing American authors and publishers for defamation in the courts of certain foreign countries with defamation laws that don't accord the same respect to free speech values as we do. Britain is a, country, is a nation that particularly is a situs for these actions. While we generally share a proud common law legal tradition with the United Kingdom, 
It is also true the United Kingdom has laws that disfavor speech critical of public officials and public figures, contrary to our own constitutional tradition. As a result, the United Kingdom has become the favorite destination for liable tourists. British defamation laws lack the constitutionally mandated speech protective elements of U.S. law. For example, in contrast to U.S. law, British law presumes the defendant is wrong and places the burden on the defendant to prove the truth of his or her allegedly defamatory statement. This feature of British law has drawn condemnation not only from American defenders of free speech, but also from the United Nations and even from some members of the British Parliament. In addition to Britain's substantive defamation law, features of Britain's procedural law tend to facilitate libel tourism, especially when it comes to the exercise of personal jurisdiction over a defamation defendant. Under their more expansive standard, British courts have been quick to take jurisdiction over an American defendant whose book, magazine, or newspaper, though principally or even exclusively distributed in the United States, reaches even just a handful of readers in the United Kingdom, or whose internet site, though based in the United States, is visited by someone in the UK. Particular concerns have been raised that as a result of the British court's expansive exercise of jurisdictional libel cases, the internet has rendered American authors and publishers especially vulnerable to libel suits in Britain. As one commentator has described the situation, quote, in the internet age, the British libel laws can bite you no matter where you live, unquote. The Senate amendments to H.R. 2765 build on the version of my bill that passed the House earlier this Congress, maintaining its core elements. Like the original bill, the Senate language prohibits U.S. courts from recognizing or enforcing foreign defamation judgments that are inconsistent with the First Amendment or do not comport with our due process requirements. The Senate language also contains, continues to prohibit the enforcement of a foreign defamation judgment against an interactive computer service if the party opposing enforcement claims that the judgment is inconsistent with Section 230 of the Communications Act of 1934. The purpose of this pr provision is to ensure that libel tourists do not attempt, attempt to chill speech by suing a third-party interactive computer service rather than the actual author of the offending statement. In such circumstances, the service provider would likely take down the allegedly offending material rather than face a lawsuit. Providing immunity removes this unhealthy incentive to take down material under improper pressure. The Senate language enhances an existing attorney's fee provision so that a court would now be required, absent exceptional circumstances, to award attorney's fees to the party resisting enforcement of the foreign judgment if that party prevails. That provision was added in committee this year to put more teeth in the bill. The purpose of the provision is to dissuade libel tourists from putting American authors and publishers through the burden and expense of defending a meritless enforcement action and to compensate authors and publishers when they are forced to do so. The most significant change made by the Senate, which I support, is the addition of a declaratory judgment remedy for a U.S.-based author or publisher who is the target of a foreign defamation judgment. This provision would allow the U.S.-based party against whom a foreign defamation judgment is entered to seek a declaratory judgment in federal court. Fi a finding that the foreign judgment is repugnant to the Constitution or laws of the United States under one of the grounds listed in the bill. The declaratory judgment remedy provides an added measure of protection for the free speech rights of American authors and publishers. Last Thursday, the New York Times hailed the passage of this bill by the Senate, we're sponsored by Senator Leahy, as a great move forward for First Amendment rights that are so important to our American way of life. I thank Judiciary Committee Chairman John Conyers, Ranking Member Lamar Smith, the members of the Judiciary Committee, and the co-sponsors of this bill for their support.
and I greatly thank Senator Patrick Leahy, Jeff Sessions, and Arlen Specter for their longstanding committee leadership on this issue. And I should say particularly Senator Leahy, who such a gentleman in moving this bill forward. I urge my colleagues to support this legislation, and I reserve the balance of my time. So like every single piece of legislation, right, they fit pork in it. Now, let me explain to you why the Speech Act was passed by this man. <laughs> and it's not about free speech. It's because if U.S. news print or broadcast or put on the Internet lies about another country um, that the other country can't sue us. And we were like, that's OK, because we won't sue you either. Right. This goes hand in hand with the NDAA that Obama did, but they needed that first. Hence why this bill was signed with no one around except for you guessed it. Obama, that Kentucky Fried Chicken Eater Cohen and The New York Times in the office. That's it. Nobody else was present when this bill was signed. No big deal was made about it. No one paid attention to it. They only paid attention to that little portion, which was important because if our media gets it wrong, then they would sue us. Or if we say something that a communist government doesn't want us to say, then they could sue us. So I get it. But what else was in there was the fact that we, as I told you, put out propaganda overseas and then we bring it here as news. Kind of like TikTok. You're going to understand more when the documentary is released. I'm hoping that Friday I can have a little clip so you can understand. But this little thing went through. One, to prevent our press to not be sued because they don't like something. But it also means that they can write up lies about another country and it's tough shit for everyone else. Knowingly and willingly, this was all done. And it was important because we needed the NDAA to go through. Because without the NDAA signed in, then we wouldn't have propaganda. Because you know, we're sitting there blaming other countries, telling all these other countries what to do, um, uh, you know, pushing our agenda. But it's an agreement. Again, it's an agreement that we have. It's not, you know, something that um, I would say it's not something that one would say is not planned. It was very planned by the Obama admin. This was the first step to get and legalize propaganda because the propaganda that specifically was legalized was propaganda that we create to bring back to the USA. And obviously that's escalated so bold. They just bring it up and bring it up. I mean, wait a minute, where did COVID come from again, guys? Let's take a think. Where did it come from? Did it come from the United States? No. Where did it come from? Uh-huh. And where did all this Spygate shit turn up from? Did it derive from the U.S. or did it come from overseas? <laughs> Question. You mean the news broke outside of the U.S. and then the U.S. just ran with it and amplified it? I see. I see. I see. Let me introduce you to this man a little bit more. I'm going to take you back in time to the 2016 elections and what this representative of Tennessee, who's been in there for way too long, had to say about that. 
let's just take a look at what his opinion about elections, about the take on the 2016 elections are. I want you guys to listen very, very, very carefully. Here we go. He is a Clinton supporter. Haven't seen you in a while, Congressman. How you doing? Chris, it's good to be back with you, and I'm doing a lot better than the last time. Good. You know, I was going to say, you know, I would have up your personal situation to one of the most bizarre things I've covered in politics. But now we have this election in front of us. So you have dropped down the list forever and at best second good. place. Uh, how do you tell people, how do you explain what this choice is about in this election that seems to have become a question of who is less bad? Well, it has become that to a lot of people. Secretary Clinton is a person who has a lot of experience and, and knowledge of government and world affairs and how to deal with people in, in a rational way. The, the other candidate is the most, in my opinion, bizarre candidate that we've ever had on a national ticket. Uh, a sociopathic, um, megalomaniac, narcissistic uh, uh, individual with a, with a, a, a detention span of, of, of a flea. And uh, he, the idea that he's the candidate of the Republican Party is anathema to any decent uh, historical Republican that thinks of Dwight Eisenhower, thinks of Charles Percy, thinks of Bill Schaefer, thinks of uh, George Romney, any of those type people. The Republican Party had people that understood the issues. They, they presented candidates that could, could act as president, even if their positions were a little more conservative uh, than the Democrats. But this year, it's a choice between competence or incompetence. And I, I think the American people will choose the right candidate and we'll have somebody that can uh, see that we honor our um, uh, obligations with NATO to protect people. I've been to the Baltic region and those people are very fearful of Russia. We can't have a person like Trump who might be making deals that make the Trump Plaza in Moscow or, or, or some other uh, Russian country or some other business enterprise a priority over well, our nation. America first means Trump second. You have two states of play. The first is... Whom do people like better? Let's put up the numbers, your favorable, unfavorables in this race uh, at last current count. You have the most historically negative numbers for both of these candidates. You have, uh, you know, they're right up on the screen for the audience right now, favorable 46 and 40. At this point in an election, almost unheard of for two nominees. Unfavorable 52 and 57, almost 60 uh, for Trump. Again, unheard of. So what do you say to people who say, I don't like her for a thousand reasons, and I don't like him, so it's a wash. What do you say to them? It's not a wash. I understand that, that people don't like both candidates, and the unfavorables are so high. But Secretary Clinton is knowledgeable and competent. She served in the United States Senate. She's been Secretary of State. When she was First Lady, she was active in all the issues that were uh, affecting America then that affect America today. But whether that's it's why, Congressman, people are against her. People use her experience as a negative because, as you know, you see this in your state acutely. People are desperate for change. They say the system is rotten to the core and they are worth it. They believe it is worth it to take the risk on someone like Trump because they are so desperate for something different. Well, Unfortunately, some people that do that aren't looking at the, at the lack of ability that Trump has. Trump doesn't have a plan for them. He doesn't have an economic plan. He doesn't have a foreign policy plan. He has no plan at all. And change is one thing. 
and taking the, the course of state and putting it off to, to wreck it is another. And you would wreck it by putting somebody in who has not the experience or the demeanor to, to lead this nation. Uh, Trump could not work with Congress. Trump could, doesn't understand the three uh, branches of government. He thinks he can just appoint people without the Senate confirmation on the Supreme Court. He wouldn't work with foreign leaders. He doesn't know repercussions of his actions. And he's just not a person that would jeopardize everything the United States is about in terms of uh, our relations with foreign nations. I understand the need for change. We need change in this country. And we certainly. All right. So because he gave us that, we should just enjoy ourselves and relive that joy that we will see soon in a different capacity that we experienced during that election. Let's just watch it because it's fun. It's just super fun. It's and foremost, it's finally here. Going into this night, where do we stand? This is where we stood coming into the night, 268 to 204. So clearly an advantage for Secretary Clinton. Take a look here, if Donald Trump wins tonight, no matter who they voted for, take a look at these numbers here. 21% say they'll be concerned. 37% say they'll be scared. This is what both candidates want. They want to be living there starting January 20th of next year. Uh, Florida has been going back and forth, back and forth. Get this changed here. again. It's only 11,000 vote lead just now. It changed. Math on your feet. I like this. The Empire State Building in New York City. Take a look at our running tally. The electoral vote. Anderson, this night is turning out to be a real nail-biter. All along, the Trump convention has been saying that Florida's must win for them. And, and I mean, it, they it, can't it, win without it. Donald Trump will carry the state of Florida. You know, I'm, I'm guessing that the people in Brooklyn, they're probably they're I can see their fingers. That's probably, Hillary Clinton. Uh, yeah, fingers probably bleeding because there's no more nail to bite. Uh, there are I wouldn't call anything encouraging for Hillary Clinton at the moment, to be honest with you, my friend. Wolf, the scene here is so different than it was a few hours ago when people were happy and relaxed. I have been looking around the room at people who are stone faced. Some of them have been crying. This was a white lash against a changing country. It was a white lash against a black president. This is the people rising up saying it's time to listen to us. It's time to listen to us in Michigan and Wisconsin and work for the people. Hillary Clinton has called Donald Trump to concede the race. But President Trump never conceded. Right? He never conceded. And he should never concede. He will not need to concede. But let's keep going on, uh, you know, this guy who, who's just a, such a great guy. Um, <laughs> there's a, a bill that they were pushing uh, to actually take over our elections. But I wanted you guys to hear about what he had to say about President Trump. Uh, just, you know, just like on January 17th. It's, it's, it's really important to just listen to this guy. Another uh, city, and t Tennessee for that matter, another state preparing for potential unrest this week. The city's police chief says that they've already been alerted to at least three armed protests, while police say they have not heard any threats against government buildings or businesses. They are prepared if legal, peaceful protests take a turn for the worse. Uh, Tennessee Congressman Steve Cohen is joining us right now. Con Congressman Cohen, thank you for being here. I do want to get, be with you. I do want to get your take on the security preps. First, I want to get your reaction to that New York Times reporting, the breaking news that we've been following this morning, that Trump allies have received tens of thousands of dollars of money from people seeking pardons. You actually, from my recollection, 
introduced legislation trying to limit presidential pardoning power. What do you make of this? I introduced legislation as far back as 2017 and then again in 2019 because it was obvious that Trump was a not responsible party to have that pardon power. Uh, he will take advantage personally of anything he can. And what I in reading that New York Times story, it's obvious that there will be people making money from it. And, you know, just recently it was said that he did not pay Rudy Giuliani his legal bill for representing him uh, in all of these uh, hoax uh, actions to try to stop the vote from going through and the, the claims of uh, illegalities in the votes. And I can see Trump saying, Rudy, get your money through pardons or quietly. You know, Michael Cohen says he talks in code. He doesn't say much directly, but he'll, in essence, consider doing a pardon or two for Rudy Giuliani as taking care of his legal expenses for Giuliani and letting him get the money from somebody else. That's the way he operates. Uh, you know, if he gave a bunch of liquor to Al Capone, he'd sell it. No different than this guy. Give him the pardon power, he'll sell it. Steve Cohen, with a way with words. Uh, say this reporting is accurate. Will you introduce some new legislation based on this? Well, I don't think there's anything you can do more than what I've introduced this year to make it illegal for the president to, to give uh, pardons to his family, himself, his uh, political uh, campaign team, and or his uh, administration. That I've got in, and that any pardon that is, uh, uh, you know, there's a, we've got a separate clause to kind of cover more questionable pardons. But uh, the, for if, if, if he's really getting money, we can prove it. It's a bribe, and if he commits, takes bribe, bribery money uh, and or uses Giuliani's bribe to, as, a, as a way to uh, uh, take care of his campaign debts to, to Giuliani, that could be a criminal right now because you still can't, even though he's got unpardoned uh, power under the Constitution to issue pardons and commutations, he doesn't have the power to, to, to take them for, for bribes. If it can be proven that it's a bribe, mm -hmm. he can be indicted. And he can, and I don't know that he, I would, I would submit he could not pardon himself for that. Okay. That gets into a circular pattern, and I don't think he could pardon himself for that, although he, I think he will give himself a self-pardon. Congressman, quickly before we let you go, we've got to ask you, Nashville, like so many other state capitals, preparing for potentially armed protests. Uh, what are your thoughts right now on what you could see there? I don't know if we're going to see anything there, and I think the truth is Donald Trump is responsible for every single one of the state capitals having to um, prepare and to defend themselves, the expenses. Donald Trump should pay for every state's expense for um, the extra security. He should pay the United States government for all the security for Biden. He ought to pay for the riot. I have introduced, going to introduce legislation and have asked the uh, uh, administration to go after him, the, the speaker and the, and the Senate leader to be uh, Schumer, to go after the Trump team and the Trump family for the expenses caused the government for the repairs to the Capitol and the defense. Trump has caused us just unheard havoc for four years. He's got 77 hours left. He'll do more bad things, but he's a crook. And some people say when they hear me say that and see me on television, they say, you hate Donald Trump. Yes, I hate Donald Trump. He's caused nearly 400,000 people to die of coronavirus. He's ruined my last 10 months. <laughs> he has threatened my life in the Capitol. No, he has wreaked havoc and destruction on the building I work in and love. He has destroyed the faith people have in the government and shown that he's been a crook for four years, and I hate him. Oh, that's so sweet. It's going to make it a lot easier, a lot easier. Let's just listen to what he had to say about the Nashville bombing.
Okay, let's just take a little listen to what, yep, gosh, she makes it so easy. You know, you always want to see that glimmer of redemption when you're going after clowns like that, right? You want to see that glimmer of redemption to be like, listen, I don't want to have to put you on the spot, but you know, you gotta, you gotta show me something that you care, that you have regret. I mean, you've been in office for like forever. You're a dinosaur. Like what the hell is Tennessee doing with that dinosaur? But, um, I guess he's going to make it very easy. Super easy. And joining us now is Democrat Congressman Steve Cohen of Tennessee. Uh, and Congressman, thank you so much for joining us. Um, you know, our thoughts are obviously with you on what's happening right now in your home. Uh, I just wanted to ask your your first thoughts or anything you want to share about the situation going on. And are, are you learning anything uh, that you might be able to share with us? Well, Nashville's our capital city, and it's a great city. Second Avenue is one of the great entertainment uh, streets in that city along with Broadway. And uh, this man wanted to make a, a statement, apparently, whether it was about um, the AT&T or some other uh, uh, facility on 2nd Avenue or maybe just on 2nd Avenue in Nashville. I don't know. But it's so sad that he's done this to, to a great American city and, and, uh, and, and caused so much destruction and damage. It's a very sad situation. I can help but kind of think about the contrast. Just last week, last week, Sunday, we were talking with you as a proud Tennessean talking about how so many of your fellow Tennesseans were taking part in that second rollout of, um, of the Moderna drug. And now fast forward to this week, we have Tennessee once again on the map, but for all the wrong reasons. Yeah, it is. It's, it's a big contrast. And of course, we're still fighting the, the, the corona. We will be and the, and the vaccine needs to be distributed. And, but this man, there, there are sick people all over this country, and uh, Tennessee has a chair. This man obviously was very disturbed. Uh, anybody that would cause that kind of destruction, it's terrorism, really. It's it's, it's urban terrorism, domestic terrorism. And uh, uh, I, I don't know whether it's this man, Anthony Quinn Warner, uh, and you know, or, or who it is, but whatever it is, it's uh, it's sad. It's caused a lot of dis um, destruction and changes people's lives. One of my uh, friends was in Nashville. And uh, she was interviewed with the L.A. magazine and just to, she was at the, the, the 21C Hotel and they, they came and cleared them out. There were just a few people there because of the coronavirus, but they went out and it's 19 degree weather. And uh, they had taken away from the hotel, gone to a new hotel, and they haven't been able to get to their belongings or their car yet uh, because the street's been closed. So it's caused a lot of uh, disturbances to a lot of families. Congressman, I, I know you're in Memphis, but you, you know that that downtown area of Nashville is so iconic. Um, the governor of your state is asking for emergency declaration from President Trump. We have 41 buildings damaged or destroyed in this bombing. How will the downtown area rebuild, knowing that this is happening right now when the area is likely already crippled from the pandemic? It's going to be difficult, and we certainly need the, uh, the help of the federal government. The federal government is is the, the, the uh, provider of of, of aid and, and crises. This is the Stafford Act and uh, a safety net for the American public. And uh, the destruction there is, is, is humongous. Uh, they need help with clearing up the destruction. And there's going to be a whole lot of people fixing windows and fixing buildings. I think two buildings uh, might have uh, um, succumbed to the damage. And, and after the, the blast, they, 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 they uh, fell down. So mm -hmm. there's going to be destruction that's going to have to be the, the rebuilding. 
buildings, uh, businesses will close, their restaurants on that. So he's really big on uh, free speech of the press so they can't get sued. He totally adores it. But he's also a big proponent about elections. He loves talking about elections and who should be able to vote and who shouldn't and stuff like that. Let's take a listen. Let's do this. Well, the 2020 election was one for the history books, and we will see its impact for years to come. However, there is an effort at the U.S. Capitol to change the way all states participate in elections moving forward. I spoke with Tennessee's Secretary of State about how the bill could impact elections in Tennessee. Is it really right that Congress should be passing a mechanism that funds our own re-election campaign? Tennessee Secretary of State Trey Hargett is concerned about the state's future. It all boils down to voters' rights. House Resolution 1 or the For the People Act was written by Democratic House Rep John P. Sarbanes of Maryland. Its goal? To expand Americans' access to the ballot box, reduce the influence of big money in politics, strengthen ethics rules for public servants, and implement other anti-corruption measures for the purpose of fortifying our democracy and for other purposes, the bill says. That calls for essentially a federal takeover of elections throughout the country. In its literature, the bill holds chief state election officials like Secretary Hargett accountable. It lays down federal mandates that make it easier for everyone to register to vote and cast ballots. However, Hargett says this past election made history in Tennessee. In Tennessee, we had great success during this past election. You know, we had record turnout. Um, we have higher voter registration numbers than we've ever had in our state's history. While voting numbers broke records, Democrats say it's not enough. The bill is showing wide partisan support. District 9 Congressman Steve Cohen expressed his support when it passed the House vote on March 3rd. He tweeted, today we pass comprehensive democracy reform that will clean up corruption and take back power. Hashtag for the people. I'm proud to co-sponsor hashtag HR1. Hashtag. For the people, I just know which people it's for. The Tennessee legislature's actions will essentially be rendered null and void because the United States government that will then be telling us how we run our elections. Do you remember when I told you how <laughs> hashtag, hashtag, hashtag your toes too? So um, as you see, the Secretary of State of Tennessee is like, wait, stop, dude. They're going to be using federal tax dollars to fund themselves. And then they're going to be picking the people on the FEC, depending on who's the ruling party. That means they're never going to get the fuck out. And no state can do anything. They want to strip the state of any rights. The Secretary of State of Tennessee is right. Who the hell is that clown, that representative? Don't worry. You're going to get to know him very, very well soon. But I thought I could introduce him right now. Take a listen to what he said about voting rights. Super important. I mean, he's all about voting. <laughs> as long as he's constantly reelected, of course. The late beloved and great representative John R. Lewis, my hero, my dear friend, my partner in making good trouble and my honored colleague, shed his blood and almost died defending the right to vote and seeking the right to vote. He often said, as he did in 2013, that the right to vote is the most powerful nonviolent tool we have in a democracy. I risked my life defending that right. Some died in the struggle if we are ever to actualize the true meaning of equality, effective measures such as the Voting Rights Act are still a necessary requirement of democracy. The right to vote is the right that guarantees all other rights in our democracy. Unfortunately, the voting rights of African Americans, Latinos, Native Americans, Asian Americans, and other members of racial and language minorities have been threatened and undermined throughout our nation's history. 
The Voting Rights Act with an effective preclearance provision went a long way towards righting that wrong. Sadly, since the Supreme Court's effective neutering of the preclearance provision, voting rights for minorities once again is under sustained assault in many parts of our country. The Act's preclearance provision requiring certain jurisdictions with a history of voting discrimination against racial and language minority groups. Predominantly, though not exclusively in the Deep South, the states of the old Confederacy, to obtain approval of any changes to their voting laws or procedures from the Department of Justice or the U.S. District Court for the District of Columbia before such changes could take effect. There was good reasons for that. History repeats itself often. And unfortunately, in the Deep South, from where I hail, that has gone on pre-Civil War, post-Civil War, pre-turn of the century, post-turn of the century, pre-election of 2020, and post-election of 2020. This mechanism ensures that the new voting rules and practices and jurisdictions with a history of discrimination were fair to all voters. It rightly prevented potentially discriminatory voting practices from taking effect before they could harm minority voters. And in this way, preclearance proved to be a significant means of protection for the rights of minority voters and for what America is about, everybody getting a chance to vote. This is why Congress repeatedly reauthorized the preclearance provision on an overwhelmingly bipartisan basis. Most recently in 2006, when the House passed reauthorization by a vote of 390 to 33, and the Senate by 98 to zero, a time when there were George Bush compassionate Republicans, a result due in no small part to the substantial, substantial efforts also of then House Judiciary Committee Chairman James Sensenbrenner and then Subcommittee Ranking Member Gary Nadler. Unfortunately, the Supreme Court effectively gutted the VRA's preclearance requirement in 2013 in the case of Shelby County of Alabama versus Holder when it struck down the geographic coverage formula that determined which jurisdictions would be subject to the preclearance requirement. As a result, the preclearance provision remains dormant unless and until Congress adopts a new coverage formula. Last Congress, I chaired seven hearings of this subcommittee during which we gathered substantial evidence establishing extensive and detailed record of continued and ongoing voter suppression efforts, particularly by those sub jurisdictions that were once subject to the preclearance, old habits, don't die easy. Old times there are not forgotten. So the effective absence of preclearance since the Shelby County decision is gone. For example, in the wake of Shelby County, North Carolina, excuse me, in the wake of Shelby County, North Carolina passed a sweeping voter suppression law that the federal appeals court ultimately held to be unconstitutional, finding that it intentionally, quote, targeted African-Americans with precision, unquote. Of course, that was after the election, no preclearance, so the damage had been done. We also heard about recent measures to make it difficult or impossible for minority voters to exercise their right to vote. These measures included polling place closures and relocations, the purging of voter rolls that disproportionately target racial and ethnic minority voters, discriminatory photo ID laws, and the restrictions on ex-felon voting, all of which are designed to make it harder for African Americans and other racial and ethnic minorities to vote. And things only seem to have gotten worse in this regard, since the 2020 election, when in response to the widespread but baseless claims of voter fraud, the big lie, there was no evidence of widespread voter fraud in the 2020 election. State legislators, uh -oh. though, have introduced a slew of measures to curtail access to the ballot. Uh -oh. with a disproportionate impact on minority folks. Uh -oh. 
Stacey Abrams laid that out clearly and abundantly to Senator Ted Cruz when he asked about, excuse me, Senator John Kennedy, when he asked about racial effects of the Georgia law. And she went on and she went on and she went on until he kind of said, enough, I get it. I don't think he got it. Neither did According you. to the Brennan Center for Justice at New York University Law School, as of a month ago, there was pending legislation in 47 states to restrict voting, and four states had already enacted restricted voting laws. These states include Georgia, a state that have been subject to preclearance, pre-Shelby County, where it is now a crime to give food or water to someone standing in line waiting to vote. It's outside the 100-foot border, but it makes it a crime to do it within that 100-foot border, to give food or water. Many of these legislative proposals will limit absentee voting and impose strict, stricter voter ID requirements, while others would make voting registration harder, expand voting roll purges, or adopt flawed practices that would risk improper purges, reduce the amount of days for early voting, and cut back on those early voting periods, according to the Brennan Center report. Sounds like he's the doing a lot. Of effective preclearance regime, it is unsurprising that discriminatory measures that have and will continue to undermine the voting rights of racial and language minority voters and erode our democracy. Oh, he's he's busy. He helped push propaganda. He helped annihilate our rights to have a fair and free election. He also, you know what? I would love it if you guys can find him talking shit about Sidney Powell, Rudy Giuliani. I mean, we just heard that one. You know, the Kraken would be fantastic. Please send that to the admins in the Telegram channel. I would love to make a montage. But yeah, he's in my purview. He should be in your purview. Because it's going to be pretty, pretty, pretty interesting. It's going to get fiery soon. Very, very fiery. And by soon, we mean like, I don't know, 48 hours. Mm. You're going to see <laughs> America going off completely. And see, we use the power of the pen. We don't need any of that bullshit Chanel bread and Louis Vuitton food and killing people for a TV set. No. Because we don't need any of this kneel and bow down to me shit, right? How the heck are we the underdog? We are not. We are not the underdog. And therefore, it's our turn now. And that's how it goes. Paranoia is in bloom, the PR transmissions will resume. They'll try to push drugs to keep us all dumbed down and hope that we will never see the truth around. Another promise, another seed, another package lie to keep us trapped in greed. You see the green belt wrapped around our minds, endless red tape to keep the truth confined.